So as you know, we've sent a uh, contingent of our, uh, of our church down to Hillmar. Anybody know where Hillmar is? Okay, about four of us. Kind of an obscure town in the valley, but uh, it's about to get on the map because Pastor Casey is, uh, is, is, is taking over today, basically, is what he's doing. He's the, the lead pastor now at the Hillmar Covenant Church. And we have sent some folks down there, and I gave them very explicit instructions. I said, now, get down there and you support him, you cheer him on. And uh, if, uh, if they don't appreciate him, or if he doesn't do well, bring him back. Because we miss, we miss Casey and Sarah already, but we're excited about this uh, new opportunity. And even though he started last week, he was actually on the road. He went to that journey to Mosaic and took some folks with him. So that was a pretty intense beginning to go on that particular trip exploring the... Uh, the background of, of California in terms of the various ethnic experiences, which is what J2M's about. I've been on that trip, and it's, it's very powerful. So we're glad that he's getting started today. You know, it hit me hard this week as I was watching the Olympics that uh, my opportunity for a medal might be starting to fade <laughs> just a little bit. Although I did notice, I don't know if you saw this, but there is a 71-year-old Japanese equestrian who is um, competing at the Olympic Games. And I've been cheering for him like crazy <laughs> to get a medal because that would inspire a whole generation, including me. So, anyway, um, very happy to be back again with you. And um, we are in a new series. This is week number two at the end of the day. And as you know, this was originally intended to be my finale. But uh, <clears throat> it, I, 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 I've been extended just for a little while. And so, um, as opposed to focusing on Paul, who wrote the letter, and it was his last letter, and he was riding off into the sunset, let's focus on Timothy, who was just beginning to mount his horse. And so, Timothy of the younger generation, the protege of Paul, is beginning to think about now his new leadership assignment. And, uh, and so, it's very exciting to look at it from that side. Let's turn to 2 Timothy again, and I want to read a little bit from last week's passage and then go into the next section. It's not really there very many verses, so we should be fine. Beginning with verse 6. For this reason, Paul writes, I remind you to fan into flame the gift of God which is in you through the laying on of my hands. For God did not give us a spirit of timidity, but a spirit of power, of love, and of self-discipline. So do not be ashamed to testify about our Lord or ashamed of me, his prisoner. But join with me in suffering for the gospel by the power of God, who has saved us and called us to a holy life, not because of anything we have done, but because of his own purpose and grace. This grace was given us in Christ Jesus before the beginning of time. But it has now been revealed through the appearing of our Savior, Christ Jesus, who has destroyed death and has brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. We are called to not be silent. Timothy apparently was a little bit on the on the reserved side, a little bit a little bit shy. Um, kind of quiet by nature. And there's nothing wrong with that. There's a time to be quiet. In fact, there are some of us, including me, who need to spend more time being quiet, more time in solitude. There's a lot of value to be gained 
from that kind of reflection, allowing other people to speak, letting, listening to other people. But there's also a time, especially if you're on the more reserved time, to find your voice and to uh, state your conviction and to express your faith. And so Paul is encouraging his young friend Timothy, as we are being encouraged, encouraged today as we listen to this, to not concede that we are defeated before we start, to not retire and retreat, because we have not been given a spirit of timidity, of anxiety, of fear, of panic, of terror, but have been given a spirit of power and of love and of self-discipline. There's something that has happened to Timothy that he doesn't even fully appreciate. That when he, when he came to faith, that faith is a package that includes a gift of power, kind of a, of a divine intervention that has done something inside the heart and life of Timothy that he does not yet fully appreciate, and you don't either, and I don't either. We don't understand yet what it means to have the very power of God unleashed in our lives. We understate, we uh, underperform, we uh, underestimate what happens when God gets a hold of somebody. Paul, the burning man, I called him last week, is trying to light Timothy on fire, fan into flame this gift. The gift is faith. And that faith links you with God. And that link creates a channel of power that personally empowers Timothy to be the person that he needs to be, that God desires him to be, and to make an impression on other people that will create opportunities for ministry that that Timothy can barely imagine, that you can barely imagine. You have more opportunities because you have more, more power than you, I'm sure, at this moment realize. So when I use the phrase Burning Man, somebody reminded me last week that there is a festival called Burning Man. Um, I know a little bit about that because my daughter went to it once. I said, you're going where? Um, And I thought that at age 13 that was too young. No, no, she wasn't 13. She was actually um, out of college. She was in her 20s. And my daughter, our daughter, our daughter, our baby girl, is a kind of a free spirit compared to the other two. She is a free spirit. And if you tell her she can't do something, then even if she doesn't want to do it, now she has to do it. So that's the sort of re- the rebel that is in our, our little Diane. So she goes off to, to Burning Man. I think, I, I think she's gone a, a couple of times. And uh, uh, I wasn't too sure about that. In fact, I was in the, in, the, in the office of someone that I was meeting, and I saw a poster framed of the Burning Man Festival. And I made kind of a caustic quip about that. I said, Burning Man. And I said something kind of disparaging about Burning Man. And he said, wait a minute, time out. Before you criticize it, do you know what Burning Man is about? And I thought, well, no, I I guess I I really don't know what it's about. I mean, I've heard rumors. I'm not sure I want to know much more about Burning Man, which, by the way, happens at the end of August every year in the uh, Nevada desert near Winnemucca, the metropolis of Winnemucca, Nevada. And he said, well, it's all about community, building community. It's all about creativity, and it's all about conversation. In fact, you might be interested to know, Doug, 
And now I could tell I was getting a lecture, which is always good because I preach at everybody else. I deserve to hear a sermon once in a while. He said, you might want to know that probably the most powerful, most popular guy, popular person at Burning Man is a pastor. I said, really? I said, tell me about it. He said, well, he sets up at kind of the main street of the village, which is there with a few thousand people, several thousand people. It grows every year. And he sets up there, and he sets up this kind of water stand, and he has bottles of water that he gives away, and he offers free water. Everybody else is selling stuff. He offers it free, and he offers a conversation with the water. No obligation. You don't have to take it. But if you want it, or if you want it later, come back and have that conversation. I thought to myself, I like this guy who's willing to go into the middle of that scene Whatever that scene means, you know, whatever is going to happen, and there are going to be some things happen that don't necessarily happen in church every Sunday. And this longing for community that we all have, Christian or non-Christian, and this desire to express creativity which God himself put inside of us, and this need for conversation, for connection, for companionship, and this guy is right at the center of that, and he's offering conversation, as well as to meet people's need because it's thirsty out. People get thirsty out there in the desert. And so I'm thinking about this first phrase in Paul's letter. You know, fan the flames. All right, burning man. But fan the flames in such a way that you are not ashamed to testify about our Lord. That you can go anywhere, speak to anybody, and do it fearlessly, because you don't have a spirit of timidity, of anxiety, of fear, of panic, of terror. You have a spirit of power. You are empowered. You are confident, not self-confident, but confident in Christ and in what Christ can do in you. And you have a spirit of love because you're giving something away and you're going to love people in the middle of that conversation wherever they come from, and they come from all kinds of places. And you're going to have a kind of self-discipline that forces you to suspend judgment on whatever it is you're seeing or whoever it is you're meeting. And you're going to have a conversation. And God is going to do something. You don't know what. You don't know how. You don't have a script. Now, most of us tend to keep quiet. In fact, we tend to stay away from such places. We're not sure we want to have conversations. Because there's still within us a kind of fear, if we're to be honest that causes us to suppress what it is we know, this good news that we know, that causes us to calculate whether or not this person is ready to hear from us, whether or not they will accept from us, and whether or not we think this is going to go well. We think about all of that in advance, and we eliminate the role of the Holy Spirit. And so we're not fearless like Paul is calling Timothy to be fearless. And Timothy's not fearless yet either. That's why Paul is writing in this way to him. Now, the other night, Friday night, Nancy and I went to the Giants game. We went to the wrong game. We should have gone Saturday. Friday night, they couldn't score a run. And it was cold. And, uh, you know, but it's it's all about the the, the company you're with, right? So it was a great game. That's what I'm trying to tell you. And on the way to the game, we're on BART going to the game. And by the way, the BART train lost all of its um, airflow, air conditioning. So it was really hot, if you remember, you know, as we started off in Walnut Creek and we're heading, you know, and it was just, you know, stifling. And a guy walks in that I know, I know him from my previous church when I was transitional pastor at Walnut Creek Presbyterian Church a few years ago. And he walks in and he walks in with, uh, with a girlfriend, I guess, somebody he's been dating, don't know her. 
and they sit down. They sit down about three rows behind us, and he's um, kind of a, um, a real open and friendly guy. So he starts talking to me, and he's talking to me across about a dozen people, which is a little weird in Bart. And finally, he says, after we kind of you know, exchange some, some greetings, he says, so where are you preaching now? Now, I don't usually advertise that that's what I do. And on Bard, it's not really cool, you know, to get too personal or certainly too religious, you know, right in front of everybody else. So am I going to own that? Am I going to own? And, and people are kind of looking. I can see them sort of, you know, kind of, you know, it's because it's, obviously this conversation is going to get either really boring or really offensive and they don't want any part of it. So where are you preaching now, Doug? And I'm thinking, okay, you're from the South. That's why you are, are so open about that. He is from the South. And that's a, a churched community where he comes from. So, of course, you know, everybody would be comfortable with that. I know that's not going to be the case here. So I decided to go for it. I said, I really love preaching on BART trains. That's where I preach. <laughs> and the folks who were starting to cringe now really went into a deep cringe, <clears throat> waiting for the very worst. And I thought to myself, okay, what do I say when I'm with people who need desperately to hear some good news but aren't necessarily prepared to hear it or prepared to hear it now or prepared to hear it in this situation or prepared to hear it from me or I'm just not prepared to offer it. At this point or somewhere along the line, Nancy asks um, something about this woman and where, where she is from that he's now with and, and a little bit about their relationship across 12 people. And I decided to, to go for it and I said, so how serious is this relationship? <laughs> you know, it's amazing the things we can talk about and things we can talk about openly. We can talk about the Olympics and we can talk about the Giants and we can talk about a lot of things. But talking about this good news unashamed to testify. Well, why would we be ashamed? Well, first of all, it's difficult for us to talk about personal things. And yet personal things that matter a lot to us, not so difficult. It's just if they're personal and we're sort of uncomfortable. I mean, it really is more about me than it is about the people around me because actually what began to happen as we were talking over 12 people is they started engaging in our conversation. And we got to know some of these people as we were talking Because people are actually much more open than you think they are, especially if they're picking up something from you that they find appealing or attractive or interesting. And by the end of the time, we were talking to almost all 12 of them about a variety of things that I'm thinking, you know, I really have more of an opportunity than I'm willing to admit, but I have to stick my neck out there a little bit. I have to declare myself. Um, I don't have to jump into a heavy topic right away, but to engage people, even on BART. Now, isn't that the ultimate test? You can get somebody to talk to you on BART. Man, you have, you're an evangelist if you can do that, even before you say anything. Testifying. Unashamed to testify about our Lord. What, and what are you testifying about? Are you giving a theology lesson? I think actually knowing too much theology might be a disadvantage. You might be saying too much too soon. I think what people are looking for and what people respond to is, what is your experience with this Lord that you believe in? 
And how does, his, how does this experience with him affect you? People are kind of reading your character. You know, what kind of person are you? They're reading, they're discerning the values you have. And, and, and they're listening to the way you describe your life. And they're with, listening to the way you react to a lot of things, a lot of other things. And they're beginning to put a reference around that, beginning to kind of catch a flavor of that. And is, is the Lord in that even before he's named? And most of all, they're watching to see how you're going to treat them. How are you going to treat them? And there's something about treating people in a loving way and uh, allowing God to change you in such a way that if he's made a difference in your life, other people are sort of, oh, what's that about? Oh, I'd, I think I'd like to know more. Um, not an argument, not, not a lecture, but a conversation, a testimony. Unafraid to testify. Unashamed. And, and, and though there's a lot that we could, we could identify, we could make a list right now of things we could be ashamed of. We, we're talking about a man who died on a cross. In that original culture, that was a shameful thing. Cursed is he who hangs on a cross. He's defeated. He's a failure. How does that work? And yet we understand that redemption works right through the very worst of that news, converting it into the very best of news. Ashamed sometimes of our fellow Christians and how they act. And yet, we're talking about human beings who are incomplete, who are a work in progress, who are on the way. And I don't want to ever act or respond out of shame for what the rest of you are doing. I want to be part of helping you, encouraging you, get to where you need to be. The truth is, those first reactions which are kind of inhibiting, which are kind of maybe even shame-producing, If we get a hold of the power of this good news that is changing us, and if it's changing us, now we've got something to share. If it's not changing you, keep your mouth shut and keep it make it about the giants. Talk about other things. Until it's changing you, you've got nothing to share. I've got nothing to share. Unafraid, unashamed to testify. Willing to suffer for the gospel. Unashamed of testifying about the Lord. Willing to suffer for the gospel. What what does that mean and why would that be the case? Well, Paul, obviously, who's writing this, knows a lot about that. Because even though it's good news, there are powers, there are influences, there are cultural values that are very invested in bad news. I mean, if you're a person of reconciliation and you step into a war zone, uh, you're going to be in the crossfire and you're going to suffer. You speak the truth when other people are avoiding the truth, you're going to take some hits for that. You live a life that is um, a life of integrity and other people are, uh, are skimming and cheating, you're going, to, uh, you're going to lose something materially. Strong chance that will happen. Um, you share what really motivates you. You talk about uh, the love that God has given you and that you feel um, because of people's experience and because of their misperceptions and because of their stereotypes. You may not be appreciated. You may take the hit. You willing to do that? And of course, it can get worse. I mean, Paul went through it. 
Paul was shipwrecked. Paul was imprisoned. Paul was stoned. Paul was threatened. Paul was beaten. Paul went hungry. Uh, And Paul says, yeah, and it's worth it for all that. Because it's for the gospel. It's not for Paul's own misdeeds. Sometimes we suffer because we deserve it. It wasn't because Paul liked to suffer. Paul didn't like to suffer at all. But he learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether he was doing really well, and sometimes he was, and he was winning a lot of favor, and we all love that, or if he was doing very poorly and was being mistreated, and it was all unfair. And Paul says, it's okay. It's all right, because this is good news. And this good news is so great that God has intervened in our world, and he's taking care of the guilt that I cannot bear and you cannot bear. And he's willing to unleash reconciliation amongst us. And he's willing to power us through. He's able to power us through the worst of situations and give us tremendous strength. Because of all that, that's such good news. I think I've got to share that. I've got to live it first. And then I think you're going to ask me about it. I think you're going to ask me what's going on. How do I do this? How is this working for me? And because I have experience now, I have something to share with you. I've got something to tell you. I was uh, in Haiti earlier this year. I'll be there again in a few weeks. And we get to spend time with uh, a lot of pastors that come together and need all the encouragement they can get and are longing for the whatever teaching. And, and they don't have much of an educational background, so they just eat it up. And it's such a privilege to be with these guys, men and women. Guys is unisex. You understand that? And the last time I was there, I was talking about leadership itself. And one of the characteristics of leadership and of of, of a developing leader is an expanded capacity to suffer. And I really believe that. And in America, I feel that so strongly because we get into a situation where it gets a little bit difficult, we give up, we quit. Not, Not as appreciated as we wanted, it got a little harder, took a little longer, got more expensive. We have a tendency to give up. So I'm presenting this to my friends in Haiti, and suddenly I realized who I was talking to. These are pastors in Haiti, and I'm talking to them. I'm teaching them about suffering. I decided that I was a little out of place and that I was probably about um, as far behind them on, on that topic as I would be on any. And so I said, wait a minute here. I think you folks, I think you guys know something about suffering. In fact, I'd like you to share your experience of how God has helped you endure when it was unendurable. And I sat down and I listened. See, I told you I can listen once in a while. I don't have to always be talking. And so he had this amazing dialogue. And actually what I believed was reinforced that what God does in us, as he emboldens us, he expands our capacity to endure, to take it, uh, to not give up. Uh, to find strength we didn't know we had, um, to face issues that, we're, that scare us to death, um, to have the conversation we've been putting off for a long time. Expand your capacity to suffer. You know, the word suffer and the word passion are related in the, in the original languages. In fact, they're related even in English. You know, to, to suffer is to be a person of, of deep passion. And passion involves suffering and it involves sadness as much as it involves joy. It's, there's a range of passion. In fact, I think one of our problems is, is God created a, a, a keyboard for us. You know, a personality that's like a keyboard. And there's a full range of passion that he's called us to experience. 
including suffering. But most of us, there are certain octaves we don't play on. In fact, we're playing on about one octave. In fact, some of us, I think, emotionally are playing chopsticks with two fingers. <laughs> we're playing two notes. You know, we're, we're not ready for the full range of experience and emotion that God has for us. Um, to expand our capacity, to, to be willing to suffer, to say, this is a hard relationship. I'm not giving up on it yet. This is a tough conflict. I'm not going to give up on it. I know I've got to say something to this person. I've got to cut across their life, their path. In fact, I think I have some good news for them. I'm not sure they're ready for it. I'm going to endure whatever pushback I get. And if they react negatively, I don't take responsibility for that because I've got to get this good news to them. They've got to know about Christ and what he can do in their life. They've got to know this. I'm not giving up until I I believe that I've given them what I can give them. And God is the one ultimately who prompts you, and he starts you, and yes, he stops you. I think we stop way too soon because he gets too hard. And Paul says, be willing to suffer for the sake of of the gospel. And then he goes on and says, remember that you are called to live a life that is holy, to live a holy life. He says, the gift of God is, is salvation, but it's salvation for a reason. It's salvation for a purpose. You're not just reclaimed by God so that you can be put on a shelf like a trophy. You're now empowered to live a new way. You're empowered to live a holy life, which means a life set apart for God's purpose. Timothy, are you listening? Young man, young woman, are you listening? Want to be leader? Somebody who wants to be part of this movement of what God's doing on the face of the earth? Are you listening to this? You have been given this gift of salvation, and it's a gift. It's a free gift. And Paul, Paul's very clear. He's clear in this passage and so many other passages. It's not because of anything you have done. And those of us that are performance-oriented, struggle with this because I have to earn everything I get. It's a meritocracy, isn't it? Well, it may be in other fields and other places, but it's not in your relationship with God because the merit is all his. In fact, you have to admit, and I have to admit, my need is profound. I'm desperate for what only God can provide. And so when he calls me, he calls me from nowhere. Because I've got nothing to offer him, and he's got everything to offer me. Paul is very clear. Timothy needs to be clear. This is your identity, Timothy. You are a person in great need. God has rescued you in Christ, and now he's lifted you to a new place with a new mission. And so he hasn't just called you. He's called you to something. Wow, it's important that Timothy and that you and me get this, that he's called us to something. He hasn't just called us. It isn't just about a relationship that's kind of private and uh, personal and, uh, and secure for us. He's called us to a relationship that's going to power us out somewhere. We're now going to represent him in all these ways. Dear friend, memorial service yesterday for my dear friend, 82 years old. I was part of the service. <clears throat> ten years ago, a little more than ten years ago, my friend Jim, a Marine for 30 years, an EMT, a volunteer serving kind of a guy. More than 10 years ago, he had a stroke. It was the first in a series of strokes. He almost never got out of bed for a decade. And that was part of his calling. Part of his calling. 
How could that be? That's kind of a cruel kind of calling, isn't it? This is a man who could do anything. This is a man who was very resourceful. This was a man who was very giving. And he loved to serve. And he needed a certain capacity, physical capacity, to serve, don't you? And there he is, locked away in his bedroom much of the time. And I'd go out on bike rides, and I'd stop by their house to see Jim and Dottie, his wife. And I'd go in, and uh, Jim had the most unbelievable attitude. I would have thought that it would be impossible to have such an attitude, especially when you have his personality, such an active guy, such an accomplished human being. And now he's in bed, and he can't really get up without assistance, and he can talk but not real well. And I would go there to cheer him up, and he would, he would pour his heart out to me. And he would share his appreciation for me. And he would encourage me. And he would tell me all the good things he saw in me. In fact, he would make up stuff, I'm sure. And I would be so lifted. I spent more time there. I always expected to spend, you know, 15, 20 minutes. I didn't want to bother him because he's in a fragile condition. And I would spend longer than that because of how much I got from him. And that was his mission. And from his bed, he reached a lot of people. And he never, because his relationship was grounded in Christ, and because he didn't lose that relationship, and because nothing was changed there, he could do anything that God called him to do. And he became this amazing encourager, prayer warrior, and... uh, and lifted so many of us up. And finally, a couple of weeks ago, his, his body finally gave out. Last time I saw him on a bike ride with Nancy, we're, we're riding together, and I stopped by, and I wasn't sure he was even awake. He was on morphine. And I said, hey, uh, Jim, it's Doug. And he woke up with a start. Doug, how great to see you. How are you? How am I? He's dying. He wants to know how I am. I mean, I, I want a heart like that, that cares so much about other people, I'm, I'm oblivious to my own needs. Because God's taking care of me, I'm not worried about that. And Jim knew he was on his way, somewhere beautiful. So he was paying attention to me for the few seconds of consciousness he had. And then I said, hey, I brought Nancy. I wasn't even sure he would remember, you know, who she was. He hadn't seen her for a while. And he kind of looks over there and he goes, hey, baby. Hey, baby. And he was just alive, even though he was on the very brink of walking away from this world and this life. I mean, God has saved us for a purpose, and he saved us for a purpose that is powered by grace. And I guess that's what you've got to hear. I think it's important for all of us to hear that. Beneath all of this, how do we get away from the shame and away from the fear and away from the timidity? Well, that's the grace of God just enveloping us and securing us. And how do we start out saying, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do this. I'm going to persevere. I'm going to endure. I'm not worried if it involves suffering or not. It doesn't have to go my way. It doesn't have to be convenient. It doesn't have to be easy. Not everybody has to like me. It's all by grace. If you're going to become this person who lives a holy life, it's all by grace. Grace comes first. Notice that it appears with Christ, but it it exists way before Jesus came into our world. It was thought of before the beginning of time, Paul says. This is the original impulse in the heart of God, is grace. It comes first, before you've done anything, before you were even born. 
it starts with grace. And this is the grace that destroys death. And so it's there at the end. It's at the beginning and the end. You're embraced by grace. It's all grace. And your response then doesn't lead you to say, well, okay, so it's all by grace, so I can do whatever I want. How could you possibly come to that conclusion? Let's sin that grace may abound? No, you can't trample on this grace. It's, it's too beautiful. It's too compelling. This grace claims you. It powers you. And it will sustain you. It will take you the distance. And this is the grace that is contained in the gospel that finally became clear when we could see it pictured and embodied in Jesus. That's what Paul is saying here to Timothy. Finally, this grace appeared, and now it's come to light what it means. Because it's for you. It's not just a theory. It's not just a rumor. It's come up close and personal in Jesus. And now, because of God's call to you, and because of your response of faith, it's all yours. And you have this powerful, the most powerful gift imaginable. The grace of God. What's going to stop you? What's going to discourage you? Who's going to scare you? What shame is going to threaten you if you can grab a hold of this grace? You know, I've, I've been thinking about this passage, and I've been thinking about how Paul is speaking to Timothy, and I've been speaking, thinking about GRX. And I'm thinking about GRX mission and vision, which we've thought a lot about this year, and uh, probably thought more about it than done too much with it yet. But the key word in the mission and vision is the word transform. And after a while, of course, that can become kind of a buzzword, you know, transformed, transformation. But transformation, transform is a very powerful word because most of us don't believe that change is possible. Maybe slightly, but even when we see it, we don't believe it. The person's going to revert back. I'm going to revert back. I can't sustain this. I can't do this. But this faith that we put on this foundation, which is grace, is transforming for us. One of the problems, we discussed this in staff this week, it was a very interesting discussion. One of the problems we have, I think one of the problems a younger congregation has, and from where I sit, you are a younger congregation. I know each of you is getting older. How many here are getting older? Okay, yeah, okay. That would be all of us. <clears throat> but you're young. Comparatively, have a lot of life coming. Part of the problem is we're more impressed with transition than we are transformation. We're more absorbed with the details and circumstances of transition. Okay, so I'm single, um, so I'm dating. So let me get through that experience, that ordeal. <laughs> I'm dating, I'm engaged. Hey, I'm engaged, I'm going to get married. Hey, we're married and we're going to have a baby. So you understand I'm kind of busy right now. We have small children, they're preschool, we're in transition. Uh, they're in preschool. Now they're in grade school, and they're very busy. We have lots of activities to go through. And so there's a kind of postponing of life sometimes. And, and, and that, 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 that relates to faith. Well, that's something I can kind of put off, and you know, eventually I'll get, I'll get to it. And, by the way, you're always in transition. It'll never end. Can I assure you of that? I've got some experience with this. My wife just retired. Okay, that's another transition. I can't imagine ever retiring, but I am married to this older woman. <laughs> who's much younger than I am, by the way. <laughs> but 
But life is transition. Life is movement. And the key isn't, okay, how do I fit God into this? No, the key is, how do I orient my whole life around this perspective? So that even my transitions honor Him. And my transitions go better. And my transitions, which you will always face, you know, have a quality about them that, that really picks up on the grace of God. Instead of just trudging through it, just getting through it, just surviving. Um, and pleasing other people, whoever we think is watching us, to see how well we're doing. It only matters that God is pleased, and God in Christ is pleased with you, and accepts you, and embraces you, and wants to power you up for the next transition, whatever it is. This is about your whole life, not some compartmentalized you know, form of your life. And so thinking all of this through, I'm thinking, can we as a congregation, can we as partners, because we as a church community, can those of us who are getting to know each other, some of us know each other, you know, there's, there's great relationships and there's new relationships, and that's all good. And so can we own this? All of us own this transformation process driven by grace. Can we own it? And if we all own it, and it begins with all of us owning it and saying, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm signed up for this. I'm ready to do this. I want to be Timothy. I want to figure out what this means. I want to live this. Okay, you don't live this all by yourself. You live it in community with the rest of us. Leaders pour into partners, and partners is a great term, and I don't mean that exclusively for those who are officially partners. I mean, we are in a partnership. That's what this community is defined by. And we're defined by transformation more than we are transition, I hope. Because transition will just tell you you're always insecure and you're never sure what's going to happen. Transformation will say, no, God is at work in your life, at work in your heart, and and the changes are becoming apparent. And then we pour into each other. Let's not forget to do that. We need to pour into each other all the time. We need to encourage each other like Paul is encouraging Timothy. Fan into flames for each other. Reminding each other of what the possibilities are, you know. My friend Jim, who is now no longer in this world, was constantly fanning my flame. I don't know that he knew he was doing that, but he was the burning man in bed with very little capacity except that which God powered up by his grace, which was huge. And yesterday, I wasn't the only one who felt that. And finally, we have to invest ourselves into this community, into this world. And we can't be afraid. We can't be ashamed. We can't be nervous about that. And we need to encourage each other with these words. And so I put this whole passage into one long sentence, and here it is. So what does it mean to be transformed? Well, from Paul's letter to Timothy, it means this. We are not ashamed to testify to the truth of the gospel, the gospel we are willing to suffer for, the gospel that calls us to live a holy life powered by grace. Would you say that with me? We are not ashamed to testify to the truth of the gospel, the gospel we are willing to suffer for, the gospel that calls us to live a holy life powered by grace. Amen.